Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. In the glass house. My name is Beth AQ. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of this land who have cared for and told stories on these lands since time immemorial. I acknowledge that colonisation is an ongoing project in this country. And with that in mind, in the last 24 hours, you may have seen an outpour of people standing in solidarity with Kumanjayi Walker, uh, who would have had his 20th birthday yesterday, but instead the Walpari teenager was fatally shot by an NT police officer last year in his home. If you do want to find out a little bit more information about that, I would urge you to go and follow Justice for Walker, uh, they have an Instagram page set up and a whole lot more information. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show this afternoon, I'll be speaking with Adelaide-based writer and author Karen Wilde. She's just released her new novel, Where the Fruit Falls, uh, and it's a novel that follows the story of a young Aboriginal woman, Bridget Devlin, and her twin daughters, Maggie and Victoria, as they go through a journey of self-discovery self-reflection and self-determination. It is out now through the University of Western Australia Press. And later on in the show, I'll be joined by VoiceWorks editor, 
Adalia Nash Hussein to talk about the latest VoiceWorks edition, Divine. This edition features essays that use religion to understand trauma, art history and bad relationships, poems that take you on a simple walk with a neighbourhood dog, and fiction about tarot, mermaids and listening in on family Zoom calls. Feels very apt for the way that we're living at the moment. Very much looking forward to chatting to both of them. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Where the Fruit Falls is a multi-generational story with a focus on young Aboriginal woman Bridget Devlin and her twin daughters, Maggie and Victoria. Set largely in the 1960s and 70s, it's a story of their journey through self-discovery, self-reflection and self-determination. It has been written by writer and author and also winner of the 2020 Dorothy Hewitt Award for Unpublished Manuscript, Karen Wilde. And Karen joins me this afternoon to chat about this new work. Thank you so much uh, for your time, Karen. Thanks for having me. It is, uh, it's a pleasure to, to chat to you this afternoon. I suppose I'd love to start, um, Karen, I know your debut novel, When Rosa Came Home, came out uh, a few years ago. I'd love to know a little mm-hmm. bit about your journey from, I suppose, writing that book to uh, Where the Fruit Falls. Well, Where the Fruit Falls was actually started before the other one. Um, I, I always have a few manuscripts um, in process. Um, but I chose to finish the other one um, first, and it wasn't meant to be published. It was just my practice uh, because I'm untrained. I've never, I've never like you know formally learned how to write. So that was my practice. And then when I finished, I thought, why not just self-publish? So I did, and yeah, it it, it quickly made all returns back really quickly. I was shortlisted for a South Australian award. Um, yeah. Mm. And then, then I went back to finish this one. And can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, the writing process for this book? There are so many um, amazing characters and there's so much kind of going on. Can you tell me a little bit about, yeah, what that process was like for you uh, just in the in the writing phase? Um, I don't plot. Um I'm what's called a pantser. So I normally just start with an image. Like I, I usually just have this flash of an image and I write that image up and then I wrap a story around it. So I never know what's going to happen until I start writing. Um, that one took me about eight years. Um, mainly finding the time was really hard. Uh, and I had to go back and just pulled apart quite a lot. Like I've probably I've probably deleted fifty thousand words mm-hmm. and rewrote it so many times. Um yeah, but I'm glad I spent that time and didn't, you know, just think it was too hard and give up. Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, this book is really, you know, it's a multi-generational story, but, you know, kind of mm-hmm. focuses on, uh, you know, a few of the women. Um, it's a book that I suppose really celebrates matriarchy and, and that kind of resilience mm-hmm. and strength of um, First Nations women. It's, you know, it's very character driven. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, the thinking behind um, that kind of celebration of women throughout the, the book? Um, well, again, like, you know, it, it's an organic process. I don't sit down to think, well, I'm going to write a book about this. It's 
as the characters start developing and basically start telling me about themselves, that, that those themes start coming out. Um, and the thinking time in between writing, like, you know, I'll take the dogs for a walk or something like that and come up with another scene and then go back. Um, so it's it's not until after I finish a work that I can sit down and think, well, these are the themes and, and this what's in there. I, I don't purposely put them in there. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Um I'd love to, I suppose, chat a little bit more about, you know, some of your your main uh, your characters that drive the story. You've got um, Bridget mm-hmm. Devlin and and her two daughters, Maggie and Victoria. I suppose, mm-hmm. can you paint a picture um, of these of these characters? Well, Bridget's not perfect in in many ways, and 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 I like how she's not perfect. She she makes some big mistakes. Like mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, especially when you're young like that. It's that sliding door that if, if you made a different decision, the whole pathway of your life would have been different. So she, she makes some pretty bad decisions in life. Um, and she's extremely stubborn but and, and doesn't take in help from anyone. But along the way, she does realise that there's a lot of kindness in, in strangers. And I think that that's a very important part of the story mm-hmm. that breaks down her barriers and, and lets her realise a little bit more about life. The daughters, I think like Victoria is quite like her mother. She's stubborn and and also pushes people away. So she has to go through her own uh, experiences to learn how to let people in. And, and then, you know, Maggie. Maggie's often seen as weak and scared, but she has a lot of strength. And there's parts in the story where she comes out and she's very strong, and, and it's her that's actually holding up her sister when her sister can't see that. Yeah, there's some really beautiful relationships between um, yeah between the characters in the book. And something else that I'd love to talk about is that, you know, the country uh, in this book is, is very much a character in the sense that the other characters are, um, and also just the way that many characters interact and understand the country, you know, kind of from mm-hmm. guiding the women um, across the desert and coastal landscapes mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, in the beginning, like very much talking about knowing the secret language of birds. Can you tell me a little bit about this element and why you think it's important or why it was important for you to portray that in, in your work? Um, I think a lot of my work that I've written has that element in and, and I, you know, I, I don't actually realise it's there until people tell me. Mm. Um, I suppose this is just really the way I've always seen the world myself, like mm. growing up on a farm and and having travelled a bit. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've always felt that land, scenes, skies were alive, and and um, and can can relate to that. Mm. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a real. It's a real strength of um, of the work, and it's really interesting to kind of see those interplays. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to talk a little bit about the. I suppose this the setting, the backdrop that you've kind of chosen. It's it, it kind of spans, uh, you know, a few generations, but kind of predominantly set in that kind of you know sixties, seventies. What, what mm-hmm. was um what was the reasoning behind? I suppose focusing on that on that time period. Well, I mean, one thing we're told to write what we know, and I'm old enough to have remembered the 60s and 70s, um, just. Um, I found it to be a very colourful, vibrant, alive era. 
there was a lot happening. Like you know, there was the music scene, and and you know, there was, it was just lots happening. There was protests. There was Vietnam protests, which I was a bit too young to go to. So I I went to other protests though in the sixties and or the seventies, um, like Aboriginal land rights. And there was a lot happening. Like you know, there was this push for for recognition in the census and for voting rights at the same time that the stolen generations were still occurring in the 60s and 70s and as was in different forms of segregation. So it was a time of conflict, right? whereas there was a lot of movement towards rights and justice, there was also a lot of discrimination and um, ongoing colonisation occurring. Mm. So I thought it was a good time to set the story of coming of age and and learning about self and identity against that backdrop. Mm. Yeah, I suppose just on that, you know, there very much, of course, is the backdrop of, you know, the effects of colonisation and kind of seeing how that played out. But also, uh, you know, I feel like you've kind of used that kind of magical realism element sometimes to mm. uh, not buffer, but, you know, make it a little bit more, maybe palatable is not the right word, but... Um, I'd love if you could, I suppose, talk a little bit about your ideas around the kind of magical realism elements to the book and, um, yeah, and how they kind of play out in your writing. Well, that's a good summary of magic realism. I mean, so many people confuse it with fantasy and and it's not a genre, it's a literary device, it's mm. a technique, not a genre. So that's a really good summary in that when people are using magic realism in literature, it's, it is to throw throw something in there that's that's either the observe or um or something that doesn't belong. Um, really just to create a fracture so people it grabs people's attention. It's like when we used to sit at magic shows and something, you know, they'd grab our attention of like something's coming up, you better watch. Mm. Um and it's also exactly what you said. It's it's a way of putting hard truths in a way that's easier to absorb for the reader. Mm. It's not so confrontational. Is that something that you feel like you have to think a lot about before you write or, you know, kind of as you said before, is that kind of something that you feel comes out when you're just in your writing process? A lot of it's not easy. I mean, some of it is just playfulness. Mm. Like a lot of magic realism is just a sense of playfulness of all things are getting a little bit serious. Let's let's just have some play here. Um, but a lot of times it's really damn hard. <laughs> um, how do you do it in a way where you're not taking into the ridiculous? Um, and I know that once I did that major rewrite and put it into to linear um the end part of the book really lacked magic realism. Mm. And so I had to really concentrate on how do I put it in there. It is a lot harder, I think, to to embed it into, because by then we're in the city, how do I, how do I make the city alive with magic realism? Um, so that was a lot harder, that. Mm. I'd love to know a little bit more about, as you said, the, the rewrite. And I think you said you've kind of changed it into more of a linear time uh, t- time frame. What what was that process like? Um, I mean, it, it yeah, it, it took a lot of strength. It's like, oh god, do I have to do this? I I think I was at seventy thousand words when I realised that it was all wrong. Um, originally, it was in two voices, so it would flip between the chapters of being in Bridget's Bridget's third person to Victoria's second person. So one being in the 
past one being in the present, so it just kept slipping. And then I realised that's not going to work, you know, I, I can't do that. So um, that was a reordering and going back and changing voice. Mm. Um, and then, then I made some other big major choices, like um, one being who is the victim, I mean, who is the perpetrators. Um, I wanted to get away from the... A trope of it's always a man mm. who's the perpetrator and it's always sexual assault or something like that, which is why then I had those tiny scenes of women, white women, doing really horrible things that changed Bridget's life and put her in danger. And so I wanted to, to show that there's different ways of um, toughening up your characters or changing their lives. Uh, so I ripped out quite a lot of scenes and characters and then rewrote them in a different way. So then we have the Von Wolf character and the way he inflicts violence is, is quite a novel way, I think. Mm. And I wanted to do that to get people to realise that there's, there's different ways to harm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that's done really well and really interestingly, as you said, a lot of the, yeah, like the white women uh, in this are very much kind of the perpetrators of, of violence, but often in these kind of covert uh, covert ways, um, which, yeah, I think is, it kind of echoes, obviously, what, our history. And um, yeah, it's a very interesting way that you've done that. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Well, by doing that, I've probably knocked myself out of a lot of awards <laughs> and I'm going to make friends. But I think we're able to have these discussions now. I mean, remember I started this eight years ago, so it, it didn't. And I, I finished writing this nearly two years ago because I spent all of 2019 um, querying and getting rejected. Um, so, so I think we're ready to have these conversations that the way that discrimination, whiteness, racism, all this sort of colonisation occurs is is not gendered. You know, women played a role as well, and they still play a role. Mm. I mean, we've got books like Ruby Hammond's book, um, uh, White, uh, White Tears, Brown Scars, yeah, Brown Scars. And, and then we've got um, Aileen Morton Robertson's mm. book. And, and so I think we're able to have these conversations. We And to be really honest, that sometimes the subtle microaggressions do more damage than in-your-face racism. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, I, and I really hope that, yeah, as you said, that people are, are, are ready for it. I feel like we're having these conversations and it feels uh, just very important to be able to be real with um, what has happened and what is happening. And, um, yeah, I hope that people will, will lean into that and, and just be open to, to sitting with some of those kind of tough truths. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, Karen, it's been such a, a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me on. I've, I've enjoyed the questions. They were good. Oh, that's good. Uh, we were just chatting there with writer and author Karen Wilde all about uh, her new novel. It is called Where the Fruit Falls. It is out now through UWAP. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
VoiceWorks is a national literary journal that features new writing and art by young people, and it has a rich tradition of publishing works that really push the boundaries in terms of craft, content, and form. Their self-purported purpose is to create a space for people under 25 to develop their creative and editorial skills and to publish and be paid for their fiction, non-fiction, poetry, art, and comics. Their latest issue is called Divine, and joining me now on the line to talk all about it is their editor, Adalia Nash Hussein. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me. It is such a joy to have you, um, Adalia. I'm just so stoked to chat to you about this. I'm always, I was just saying off air, ever impressed by the work of VoiceWorks. Um, but Adalia, I know you've been involved in VoiceWorks for some time, but you know this is your second edition as editor. Um, what's that transition been like, uh, I suppose, coming into your editor- editorship and also you know, in particular reference to you know, a, what is a great year of change already? Yeah, totally. Yeah, they sort of happen simultaneously for me because, um, yeah, I think really the day that I interviewed was pretty much the last day that I sort of was in the Melbourne CBD doing CBD things. I think I sort of, yeah, we kind of official, nothing official had happened, but I think it was sort of, um, I like went mournfully to my favorite bookshops and was like, this is the last time. (laughs) Um, and then, yeah, then I found out a couple of days later that I'd, um, gotten the job, which was really amazing and like very lucky timing in terms of, you know, uh, it's a good time to have a a really good job. Um, (laughs) but also, um, it was just a really, uh, yeah, it's it's been interesting navigating those two uh, changes at once, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And VoiceWorks is such a collaborative process. Like I know, I definitely think one of the key strengths of VoiceWorks is, you know, that collaborative editing process that you go through, you know, with each person who's submitting work receives that individualised feedback, regardless of whether they get accepted or not. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, what that process has been like for the editorial team um, this year? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's kind of been, it's been an interesting one. So we had, we've had some like hiccups that were still a little bit behind on some of the providing feedback because we had, um, at the, uh, yeah, we were locked out of the building. So we usually, uh, print all of the pieces out and read them and write our comments by hand kind of thing. And then we lost all of them because they were inside a building that we weren't allowed to get into. So that's put us on a bit of a back foot on that, uh, is one example, but, um, yeah, it's been a really interesting process because we kind of, um, recently had an intake of, of a bunch new, of new editors where Divine was their first, um, new issue, just like a timing thing that that's how, how stuff worked out. And, um, and yeah, it's definitely been a really interesting process, like first getting used to working with the existing committee via online things where usually we were kind of, um, in person most of the time for people who lived in Melbourne and then again then like uh doing the kind of bringing new editors on and um and working out how to kind of um yeah I guess create like rapport and create a relationship because it's kind of one of those things where like um yeah we have these kind of processes in place for um buddyship you know where like new people get given someone who's like uh more experienced to kind of help walk them through the process and kind of those sorts of things but um I think sometimes uh for everybody including people who are 
super experienced, like the best thing is just when you have a question and you feel like comfortable to ask. And so trying to create an atmosphere where you feel like people can ask what they might think of as dumb questions um, and sort of trying to create that like camaraderie and friendliness and that kind of professional atmosphere um, all online. Um, yeah, it's definitely been a challenge, but I think it's something that um, we've risen to. Mm, absolutely. I'm, I've no doubt that you would have. And uh, as you said, I, I feel like it is a really big strength of VoiceWorks having that, you know, fresh blood, that renewal of editors um, with having that kind of hard cap of, of when you can uh, stop contributing to VoiceWorks. And I think it, you know, you can kind of constantly tell in the in the content that there's just this vitality and um, initiative that VoiceWorks is always kind of at the centre of. And it's really, yeah, I could just talk about how much I love it all day. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about... I suppose, you know, the ways that you're kind of rethinking the work that you're doing this year. I, I saw um, earlier in the year you did your first ever VoiceWorks launch um, with a kind of Animal Crossing aesthetic, um, which I loved because I learned about Animal Crossing from you, Adalia. <laughs> Can you tell me <laughs> a little bit about, I suppose, what it's been like to kind of rethink the ways that you celebrate um, this work that you do in, in this, you know, in this wild year? Yeah, definitely. I think... Um it's interesting, like, I definitely, I miss lots of things about the in-person launches, just, like, seeing people and, um, I mean, yeah, just, yeah, it, there's things to miss about in-person launches, absolutely, but I do think that, especially literature, I think, um, can sometimes be a bit, like, maybe complacent about events, like, I think that, um, you know, we kind of are used to launches for books and magazines are just kind of they're at a bookshop or a like bar or a cafe or whatever and kind of there's a reading and maybe a like mild conversation kind of thing. And it's mostly just people milling about who kind of have some relationship to the thing and um, will buy a coffee kind of stuff. And I'm always really excited when there are launches that kind of um, push beyond that and do like something more interesting. I think Archer sometimes gets really amazing performances. I think Liminal often gets really amazing performances and try and kind of like really consider what like the point of the event is and what you're doing with the event. And I think that, um, yeah, definitely for me, the like online thing, I'm already really interested in like digital literature and like, you know, I think um, – using yeah using that online as like a uh strength and not just sort of making a less good version of what would exist um yeah so like something I think about a lot is like I think that um I think like physical books and magazines have gotten better like in terms of like as objects have improved um since sort of ebooks and like you know uh, digital stuff have existed because I think it's become we're more like aware of the like form of the object and like what it is that is nice about a book and that you know um what like sensations are good about it and the typefacing and the design and all of that kind of stuff and I think it's stuff that can seem silly but I think it does really like books are more aware of themselves as books and what the space of the page can be used to do. And, um, yeah, similarly, I think the online event thing, um, yeah, it's, I think, made us, like, think harder about what it is that we're doing with the online events because I don't know about um, everybody else, but I definitely, like, suffer from pretty severe, like, 
computer Zoom fatigue kind of thing. I sort of, I get to 5 p.m. and I'm like, oh, I don't want to be on this anymore. And so that sort of changed everything, you know, changed the timing of the event, sort of experimenting with having them in more of like an afternoon as like a tea break rather than an evening, like uh, in-person event kind of thing, how we would have those as sort of, you know, drinks and dance kind of thing, having it as more of like a tea break and, um, and, and using the online things. So we've had some really amazing, the readers have done some really amazing things in terms of integrating sounds and images and clips and stuff to sort of enhance their piece um, when they're reading beyond the page. Um, And, yeah, that's been really nice, kind of, I think. Um, And when we return, I know, uh, yeah, we have some big ideas of um, what we'll do when we can do in-person events again. So I think, um, yeah, it's made us, in the same way that I think e-books have made publishers reconsider the physical books, the e-events have made us reconsider events in general and making them a bit more special Mm. well that's so exciting it's just I'm so intrigued and I can't wait to see um what you're talking about in the future um I suppose now is probably a good time to also point people towards VoiceWorks online because you're doing really interesting stuff there as well um but I wanted to I suppose talk you know about this uh edition that you've put together you know 2020 has been a wild ride it's you know often in times of kind of great change or upheaval or kind of you know what has been crisis we look for those kind of traditions or rituals to kind of sit back on that kind of give us that sense of grounding and community and you know I'm just interested in if those feelings kind of um were the kind of anchor behind the, this theme of, of divine, of kind of looking for, searching for um, something to kind of make sense of, of this year. Is, can you tell me a bit about the thinking behind that? Um, if I'm honest, we've kind of started thinking about wanting to do something along this line. We had a different name. We had a different theme that was similar that we were considering that then we realised another magazine had done recently. And so we were like, oh, okay, we'll have to rethink it and do something like that later. And so we actually kind of started thinking along those lines as a potential theme before um, before the pandemic. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's something that um, the previous editor, Mira, and, and I and some of the edcommas are, are all really interested in. And that I think in general, like, maybe young people have started to um, think about more again. I think that there's kind of... Um, yeah, different ideas of what, like, faith is in terms of, I think, um, often it can come as either something that's really, like, like hard rules and hard beliefs and really, like, um, like not, you know, really... I'm trying to think of the word that's opposite of inclusive. <laughs> I'm so Exclusive? I'm an editor and I just don't know any words. <laughs> but, you know, just really... Um, yeah, really sort of turning turning people away and really um, antagonistic. Or then, like, the other version is, like, this really kind of airy, fairy, woo-woo kind of um, idea of spirituality. And I think that there's something in the middle that I feel like a lot of people started looking um, towards or something where it's, like, yeah, to do with, like, ritual and to do with, um, yeah, recognising some form of something but not necessarily, um, yeah, like, I think... Um, well, my mum recently wrote an essay um, that uh, for Luminal about um, her experience when uh, she was quite young. She was like a housekeeper for this 
um, quite orthodox Jewish family and kind of how um, that, like, changed her perspective on, like, religion and ritual. As the rituals was kind of part of the, like, reminding yourself of, like, belief, but also, like, questioning that belief mm-hmm. and, like, thinking about it and just having something present to think about. And I think... Um, yeah, I think definitely, um, especially as so many of our, like, maybe non-clearly spiritual rituals in terms of, you know, yeah, so many of my, like, daily rituals of, like, uh, catching the tram <laughs> to work and reading on the tram and, like, you know, doing this, like, going browsing these particular shops and going to these particular walks and having these particular treats when I was feeling sad, like those things have all been exploded. And so I think finding those more conscious rituals that are maybe just about the ritual in and of themselves and not about whatever kind of was originally tied to them can be, can be really nice. And, and yeah, I think, um, there's sort of a mix of pieces in here in terms of how, whether they're kind of, grappling with the now or the, uh, you know, before times or whatever. But I think, um, I think it's a really interesting perspective on, on what divinity and I guess what people hold dear. Mm. Yeah, I definitely feel like it's kind of expanded my thinking, just giving it that framework that you, you know, you point out in your editorial saying that the pieces in this issue reflect a divinity that is tangible but malleable, which I just really, I really loved. And, you know, just thinking about some of the pieces in, in this, uh, in this edition, you know, you've got everything from Taylor Swift to dogs and just kind of putting that in that framework, I just really, uh, I really loved. Do you want to maybe speak to some of the, the other pieces in this edition? Yeah, sure. There's so many good ones and I feel like so bad every time I have to choose um, (laughs) some of the ones to talk about. I think, um, yeah, the piece kind of, uh, yeah, it opens with this really beautiful fiction piece by Julie Hart called We Are Each Other's Vaults, um, which I think uh, it kind of looks through... um, yeah, like the, um, a mother-daughter relationship and a relationship to, like, the diasporic experience. And um, I think, yeah, has this really... Uh, I don't know, I think that those familial relationships and those kinds of um, rituals that you have and ways of communicating that you have with your family members that just does a really beautiful job of conveying in a, like, super non, like, over... Uh, overbearing way like it's not like if you read this piece without that framework you would necessarily be like ah oh, yes it is about ritual and divinity or whatever mm. but I think it it sits really beautifully within that theme thinking about that for me I think like lots of these were probably not written with that necessarily in mind but I think um the, the framework kind of is a really interesting beautiful way of tying them together and thinking about them um We've been getting some really amazing work from, like, super young poets lately. So we have a really beautiful poem um, by Janiri Lignane, who I think is 14 or 15. Um, I'm always, like, blown, mind blown um, by this sort of stuff. Like, I think, yeah, I don't think I was even writing, like, shitty breakup poetry when I was that age. And, like, yeah, there's such, like, complicated... um, yeah, like little intimacies that I think are being conveyed um, 
in a lot of these poems uh, that are just really, um, yeah, special to read. Um, yeah, there's, as you said, there's a, there's a, we end with like a really um, sweet poem about walking dogs, which I think, yeah, again, kind of takes on various meanings um, in terms of how walking has become such a big part of sort of people's like, you know, something people are so aware of going for a walk now um, because of isolation and stuff. I think it's um, nice to read this kind of quite simple poem about about walking and walking dogs. Mm. Um, there's yeah, there's also a really great piece um, called. Sorry, I'm just going to get the title completely right. Notes on Clover from Totally Spies, which I think is a really um, sweet and funny sort of um, like tracing a personal lineage of these various like kind of cartoon characters um, who were really like formative on the writer Mason Woods like uh, I guess like a vision of themselves but also a vision of like you know an ideal or like what one could be and stuff I think um ways of different visions of ways of different ways of feeling powerful or whatever I think um there are like some shared references that I have with this piece but like totally spies I never really watched or something but I still find the piece so like um I guess like relatable and makes me think about myself because I think yeah often when you're like a kid I feel like there are so many references that like feel so big and key and then when you kind of get to adulthood you sort of are suddenly reminded of them and you're like oh my god like I can't believe I'm not constantly thinking about this I'm so (laughs) obsessed with this like I was I thought today this is maybe unrelated but I was like walking and I just had this sudden reminder the, the hush puppy mascot, the dog, the hush puppies. I I think I had a toy of this dog, and when I was a kid, I was so I just it just really seemed like it was a major reference point. This dog from the hush puppy commercial commercials or something, but it's truly something I've never thought about as an adult. Like, does not come into my life. Doesn't feel like it's a shared reference with other people. <clears throat> But you just, like, develop these relationships where, like, something seems important and feels important for you. And I think, yeah, I love reading about about that and, um, yeah. I love that and I can't wait to uh, see that reference come up in your work very soon. Um, Um, just really quickly before I let you go you know something that I love about the kind of changing of the button with the editorships is kind of seeing the different aesthetic of the magazine Um, I know that Mm. you've been working with a new designer Um, can you just tell me quickly a little bit about what that's been like to to kind of yeah have the vision of of the of what it looks like on the page yeah it was really nerve-wracking thinking about it just because um, the previous designer, Mike, had just, like, I think done so much in terms of uh, developing a really, like, coherent but, um, like, specific aesthetic and then I think being like, oh, we need someone, I want a designer who can do that again where they're not just going to be copying Mikey but they're going to be able to do their own style and it's still going to be really, feel really right for us. And, um yeah, I think, yeah, Selena Refinis is our designer and she's just so great to work with and has been such a, like, pleasure. <laughs> it's interesting, like, sort of talking um, 
she sort of says, like, you know, like, it's really nice having this job because, like, you know, I've, like, made friends even though I'm, like, not seeing anyone kind of stuff. Like, yeah. you know, we still haven't met each other, but, um, but yeah, I feel, like, really close to her. And, and yeah, like, I think um, the, like, care that she takes with the design and, like, the thoughtfulness, like, with the Taylor Swift piece for mm-hmm. every heading, she's kind of matched the – tried to, like, match the tone of the – heading font to the tone of that album kind of thing so there's sort of these very like loopy fonts for like lover and then more like hardcore for like, reputation and stuff like that um and I think there's all these like tiny details in how she um thinks about font and space and it kind of makes me think of like an elevated like high school yearbook almost like an elevated like 80s high school yearbook or something I really I really love the level of like thought and care and and like research she does into the people who've like designed the fonts and all that kind of stuff it's really um amazing and yeah it's so good and I you know you can really kind of see that that shift and you know since kind of Mira finished up and been such a, a pleasure chatting with you thank you so much for your time this afternoon This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 